From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the vaccination debate heats up once again in the state legislature, we get perspective about lingering concerns when it comes to the safety of vaccines. From a distrust of government and big pharma to the main reason some people get sick after getting vaccinated. Jennifer Reich, University of Colorado Denver sociology professor and author of Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines, joins us. Then, teens under stress will meet a girl who got help breaking the cycle of suicide-related trauma in her family. She's now helping others do the same. And a novel centered around memory. Memory is both beautiful and horrifying. And, you know, you, you can escape from a lot of things, but you can't escape from your own mind. The thriller by a Colorado author takes readers deep into the maroon bells. It's now up for an award. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Hundreds of people stayed into the early hours of today to testify at the state capitol, both for and against a bill that adds requirements for parents who want to opt a child out of vaccinations. In the end, it advanced out of a Senate committee. It's one of several bills introduced this session by supporters and opponents of the vaccination debate, and it highlights some of the concerns, debunked or otherwise, associated with vaccines. Jennifer Reich is a sociology professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the author of the book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. There are a lot of reasons parents say they don't want their kids vaccinated. Many point to health concerns. Is there any truth to people who say there are certain vaccines that can make you sick? You know, the question of like truth, I think, is uh, best left to virologists and immunologists who have, I think, bodies and bodies of data to show that there is amazing monitoring of the safety of vaccines. As a sociologist, what I'm most interested in is how parents make decisions for their own children, starting with the premise that everyone wants what's best for their own families and are working to get it. And the concerns that vaccine causes autism that was debunked nearly 20 years ago, but there's and there has been ongoing research in Europe that continues to show that there's no connection. Yet this type of worry still emanates despite scientific evidence. And this gets into that sociology you're talking about. Why do you think that there is mistrust among parents? You know, vaccines have been uh considered one of the most important life-saving technologies at times when people were fearful of diseases, who had seen things like polio, closed swimming pools in their neighborhood, or who remember being sequestered with measles for a month to protect the other kids in their neighborhood. For those families who remember them, and many of them are much older than we are, those kinds of technologies of having the option of a vaccine was a game changer for them, and it created a sense of relief and safety where none had existed before. Today, I think families' calculus of what are the risks and what are the benefits of any kind of intervention feel really different. Parents see themselves as committed to their children and working hard to make what they think are the best decisions they can for their children's health. And vaccines at this moment, which are protecting against diseases that most families haven't seen in their lifetime, come to be seen as maybe risky or of unknown long-term risk and and of minimal benefit since those diseases haven't been in circulation here in a long time. And people don't have that lived experience of seeing an epidemic. And so when they're calculating the risks and benefits for their own family, they tend to overemphasize the risks and underestimate the benefits. Uh, Do you have any sense of whether the outbreak of the new coronavirus might change some minds in general about vaccinations, even if there isn't one for that virus? Yeah, I think that's a perfect question. Whenever we start to feel fearful of infection, we see more calls 
calls for vaccines and more calls for public um, interventions to protect people. So coronavirus is one example. We saw something really similar in the past with SARS or even thinking about the conversations we had when Zika was creating a sense of concern nationally um, and internationally. So there's definitely opportunities when we see outbreaks for people to feel more vulnerable and to want greater protections. And that goes back to the ways that each of us is trying to make sense of what we most need and what we most fear when we make decisions. And going back to those risks, I understand that we're leaving the hard, like the hard issues to the virologists. But I do understand that most problems with vaccines come from infections that develop at the infection site. Um, Does that mean that there is some room for unanticipated problems? We should always remember that any kind of medical intervention will have some amount of risk, and that can be measured and calculated, and vaccines are not an exception to that. Vaccines have a better safety profile than, I would say, any pharmaceutical product on the market. For example, your risks of reactions to antibiotics are much more likely than for a vaccine. And there's a series of safety monitoring systems that I didn't know about until I started studying vaccine safety. So there are groups that monitor health uh, insurance claims data to look for abnormalities, look for emergency room visits following vaccination, who are looking for patterns that could indicate a minute increased risk that they should be studying. And we have agencies that meet several times a year to go over all of the data and to evaluate constantly if vaccines are working and if they're safe. I think one of the limitations we have is that most families and even most pediatricians don't know about what systems exist and aren't really able to talk about the way this is really different than a lot of other pharmaceutical products on the market. A concern raised during testimony is that vaccines are all about sales, but you've actually said that many companies don't want to produce vaccines because they don't make a lot of money, right? It seems like, you know, what we've done in the U.S. is we've, we've trusted vaccine manufacturing to for-profit corporations, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to why that feels questionable to families. But it turns out very few companies want to manufacture vaccines because it, um, one product that's used once or twice in your lifetime and that doesn't have a patent anymore is not the highest priority for manufacturing. And instead, we have lots of lifestyle drugs that are taken every day for your entire life that pharmaceutical companies are identifying as a more important profit opportunity. And that's in many ways leaving us with shortages some seasons. And going back to those suspicions, some people are suspicious that vaccinations, because because pharmaceutical companies can't be liable for adverse effects from vaccines, instead there's a federal government fund that compensates people who have claims against vaccines. Why is the system set up that way? This is such an interesting history, and it goes back to the early 1980s when there was concern about the whole cell pertussis vaccine, which has since been discontinued. And there was a series of lawsuits that resulted in pharmaceutical companies announcing they would no longer make vaccines. The result of this was uh, a law that was passed in the 1980s to create a trust fund that was is paid with 75 cents tax on every vaccine, and it goes into a trust that's intended to compensate families. And it's different than other legal systems. It's a claims court, so you don't have to prove causality. It's supposed to be non-adversarial. And the goal is really to say, if you participate in public health, we should make sure you're fine. The existence of that has of that court itself has become more controversial. And I think for families who already are inclined to distrust vaccines, the court seems to suggest there's that this is an admission of risk. And for others, it shows a faith in the in the importance of public health. What's interesting now though is that the Claims court was intended to support children, um, and today it mostly compensates adults, and most of them are from very particular injuries caused by um, flu vaccines. 
and there are things like harm to the shoulder from the hypodermic needle itself, things like Guillain-Barre, which is a known but rare complication of flu vaccine, and uh, and things that affect adults. And there's very few children at this point that receive compensation because there's very few claims for injury to children because vaccines have become so safe. Now, I'm interested. The Centers for Disease Control says Colorado has the lowest vaccination rate among kindergartners for measles, mumps and rubella. It's now at 87 percent. Does that make this state more vulnerable for an outbreak? So we treat, you know, we talk about every vaccine preventable disease as exactly the same. But what we know is that the level of infectiousness varies. And the result of that is that we need different levels of community immunity for different kinds of vaccine preventable diseases. Having said that, anything below about 90% presents risks to everyone in the community. One of the reasons Colorado leads the nation in low vaccine rates and has for quite some time now is that we have a very permissive system for opting out of vaccines and still um, participating in public school and childcare. And so the result of that is that at this moment, you uh, you only have to sign a form and it can be, it doesn't even have to be a standardized form and you can opt out. And what other researchers in other states have shown is that the, uh, the level of detail involved in the opt-out process tends to increase or decrease the level, the number of people who participate. And so I know one of the things that the Colorado legislature is considering right now is this question of whether we should make the process of opting out at least as cumbersome as having to take your child to a doctor's appointment. So can we at least equalize the work involved in making this decision? Um, and, and there's evidence that this alone might affect the decision to opt out. Interesting. So that just the level of work really makes a big difference in vaccination rates. Um, You spoke with a lot of parents, mostly moms who are concerned about vaccines or who don't want their kids to get certain ones. And you said that you empathize with their worries when we think about what's expected of parents these days. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the ways that I came to this research was really to ask the question, you know, how do parents make decisions for their children, knowing that parents always want what's best for their children? And I myself am a parent. I understand how hard these choices are. What we've come to culturally is this moment, though, where we expect parents to make perfect decisions all the time, and we communicate that the decisions are entirely their responsibility, and whatever the outcome of those decisions will be their fault. And so each decision parents make, whether it's school choice, whether it's traveling soccer teams and tutoring, um, whether it's healthcare decisions, all feel high stakes. And I'm, I'm sympathetic for what that feels like as a parent and also aware that we have to start trusting each other if we're going to move forward in ways that can protect all the children in the community. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Reich is a sociology professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the author of the book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. We've been talking about some of the concerns associated with vaccines. The Colorado legislature is considering a number of bills by supporters and opponents of vaccinations. Children who lose a parent to suicide are three times more likely to die the same way. But most do not. Even as suicide rates climb, researchers say children are resilient. The key is getting the right support. As part of our Teens Under Stress project, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine profiles a teen determined to break the cycle of trauma in her family by getting and giving help. Oh, yeah, this is my new journal. So I wrote down the things I wanted to continue. 18-year-old Alex flips through her journal entries. It's amazing to me. I'll look back at journal entries from a year ago, and I can't even recognize the person who was writing that. 
I was just in such a dark place. As a child, Alex loved her life. She, her mom, and her dad were super close. Her dad was her best friend. But by her teen years, when her dad's business began spiraling downward, so did he drinking heavily. He became physically and verbally abusive. Alex got so frustrated with her dad's drinking, one day she collected all the wine bottles she found around the house. I took all of them and I put them on his bed so that when he got home, he would have a visual of what he had become. He came home that night drunk and it didn't go well. That was the the night that I moved out. The summer of her 16th year was turbulent. Her parents fought, her dad's addiction worsened, he was in and out of the hospital. She got ugly phone messages from her dad. A week after her last conversation with him, an argument, her dad completed suicide. Alex began sleeping all day in a dark room, not moving. She fell into a deep depression, overwhelmed with guilt. Her mom would make her go outside, and she'd walk and walk. She'd listen to angry music, sad music. That helped. Will you end my pain? Will you take my life? Will you bleed me out? Will you hang me out to dry? Will you take my soul in the midnight rain? For some people, listening to that might make them feel worse. For me, it's that comfort of just knowing that there are many other people who feel this exact same way. I was just so sad. I just wanted my dad back. But no one was aware of how bad I was doing. I could not function. I was not sleeping. If I was sleeping, I was having really awful dreams. In the year and a half after his death, there were four more suicides in her life. Teens she knew, one a really close friend. Eventually, Alex was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, where she relives the trauma involuntarily. And it was almost like a hopeless feeling of, will life ever get any better? Is anything ever going to get better, or is it just going to always be this painful? Um, this is a, a look into his mind. So she flips is... through her dad's journal. He's energetic, compassionate, very goal-driven. But there's also a sense of a man struggling. Alex found out that her dad had grown up in an abusive environment, as had his father. Generation after generation. Abuse, alcoholism, suicide. She knew that put her at high risk. I wanted to be able to confront my issues and deal with it now. Even if I'm only 18 years old, I wanted to deal with it right now because I didn't want to take that with me and eventually self-destruct or hurt the people around me like they did. Alex knew she had to get healthy. She began taking medications. She started therapy, specifically for PTSD. She also found talk therapy very helpful. She made adjustments in her life. At the beginning and end of every month, she writes three things she's doing well at and three things she's doing poorly at, whether she's getting enough sleep or taking her medication. Some of them are, I'm doing a really great job reaching out to people or, you know, just tracking your progress throughout life because in life there's not a trophy at the end you know everyone measures success in a different way and for me that's how I measure my success. It allows her to recognize the moments of strength she has. What has helped her heal faster is writing down what's good in her life. She says negativity does nothing but consume. Alex writes down in her journal big serious goals like starting a nonprofit. But like her dad, she's also written down a bucket list of fun goals like build a treehouse. See a sloth. I've never seen a sloth and I love them. Try being a vegan. I want to see a platypus. Wait, do those exist? They do exist, right? I don't know. You can be so clouded in your head, but then 
when you start thinking towards the future too and remembering all the things that are out there and the things that you look forward to, it doesn't make your life seem so hopeless. Like there's so much out there. She's found that helping other teens is therapeutic. So just being outside and just enjoying the fresh air and the sunlight can really help with depression. So for me, She posted a few videos answering teens' anonymous questions like, is it possible to recover from a mental illness? Another says, social media can literally make me sick to my stomach. How do I disconnect? Another, how do you deal with losing someone to suicide? I cannot stress to you enough. You couldn't have changed anything. They were sick, and that was a side effect of their illness. And perhaps the hardest question of all, how to be there for a friend who's struggling with a mental illness. Honestly, just showing them love, support. She says when she was down, mostly she just wanted to get out of the house. Listen to some early 2000s throwback music and go to Taco Bell. That was pretty much all I did. And that's all I need. One teen with depression talking to another, there is a power in Alex's words. Just listening. You're not expected to have all the answers. You're not expected to know how to respond to everything. That's not your job. You're not a therapist. You're just there for support. She knows for herself, life will be a long journey of discovering what helps her mentally. She flips through her journal again, looking at song lyrics she liked and scrawled down. Look at your children. See their faces in golden rays. Don't kid yourself. They belong to you. Sometimes that feeling about her dad comes back. It's just the feeling of just wanting... Him to just be there one time, just one time, is something that I just have to learn to live with for the rest of my life. These are song lyrics, too. Outside my misery, I think I'll find a way of envisioning a better life for the rest of us. She says that's something important to her, trying to better the world, not just for herself, but everyone around her. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. If you're dealing with thoughts of suicide or are worried about a loved one, call 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can ask questions about youth anxiety and find other profiles of teens under stress at CPR.org teens. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Addiction, illness, physical impairment, they can hit all of us and the people we love. I'm Vic Vela, your weekend host here on CPR News, and now I'm the host of a new recovery podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering drug addict, and on this podcast, I talk to people who've made their own comebacks. One thing I learned in recovery is that I need to just cut myself some slack. I'm a human being, and I need to embrace that fully. The first episode comes out Friday. Listen to the trailer and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org. What if you lost all the memories of your childhood? What would you risk to get them back? Or put it another way, how important are memories? That's the question at the heart of a psychological thriller by Colorado author Carter Wilson. His book is called The Dead Girl in 2A. It's just been nominated for a Reading the West Award in the adult fiction category. I spoke with Wilson when the book was published in August. We started with the idea that it's both intense and complex. With all my books, I always think of an opening scene, and that's what I start with. And then this opening scene, I thought of a man and a woman meeting on an airplane, seats 2A and 2B. And I thought, well, what if they they each had an independent sense that they knew each other? But not even just a light sense, but a visceral sense, even by smell. And how would that conversation form? And so they spend the entire flight trying to figure out how it is they know each other. And then the only thing they have in common is that neither can remember their childhood before the age of 10. 
And as the flight descends into Denver, the woman confesses to the man that she's going to the mountains to kill herself. And the, the, what happens in the book is all about what happens after uh, they get off that plane and she disappears into the airport. And we have these characters, Clara and Jake, they strike up that conversation on the airplane. And Clara feels desperately disconnected from people. And in that way, Jake is really Clara's complete opposite. He's deeply troubled about what's going on with the people closest to him, his family. Um, and I want to have you read from uh, the very first scene in that book. Sure. Jake Buchanan placed his palm on his eight-year-old daughter's cheek, hooked a strand of chestnut hair behind her ear, and wished again that he could change the past. M lay on top of her bed in her room, beneath the ceiling light needing two of its three bulbs replaced, and Jake thought her scar seemed a deeper shade of purple than usual. Thirty-seven stitches. That's how many it had taken to sew up his little girl again. The scar wound from just above her right eye across her temple, then up over her ear, looking like a millipede forever crawling on her face. All Jake could think was, I'm sorry. Jake was driving his daughter when they had an accident and she was hurt. And that's one of the things that's really put his life at a crossroads when he boards that plane. What is he thinking about at this point in life? Well, he's trying to do what's right for his family, but further complicating matters is that Jake has always suffered from not knowing his past, not knowing anything before the age of 10. And in the last year or so, he's starting to lose more of his memories. And he's only in his mid-30s. So that is further um, unnerving him. And so he is he's going out to Denver to take a job to help pay for his daughter's surgery. Um, but he's, he's riddled with comp- complex thoughts about why he's losing his memories all of a sudden. And memory is really, it's at the heart of this story, not just for Clara and for Jake, but also for a couple of other pivotal characters. Why did you decide to write about that? Yeah, memory has been a thread in um, all all six of my psychological thrillers. And, you know, it's actually 10 years ago this year that my father passed away from early onset Alzheimer's. And so this was a book that I finally just wanted to completely confront memory head on because memory is both beautiful and horrifying. And, you know, you you can escape from a lot of things, but you can't escape from your own mind. And I wanted to have these characters struggle with all those thoughts and feelings in this book. And is it a topic that you write about because memory or the lack of it, it's a frightening topic to you? It's certainly something I think about. Um, I, you know, you, you certainly worry about how you're going to age and what's going to happen to you. And so I like to explore, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of paranoia in a lot of my books. And, you know, memory is at the heart of paranoia, uh, knowing what's real and what's, what's not. So that's, that's a tool that I use to kind of evoke, yeah, evoke feelings for the readers in this. There are some really creepy elements in this book, even before Jake and Clara meet. Each connects separately with a man named Landis in Boston. He lures them into what he calls clinical trial or a a clinical trial to help them with their memory issues. And briefly, what does that involve? Yeah, that involves um, getting these two characters to take pills. And I really wanted to have these characters so desperate that they'd be willing to go to this clinic and start taking this medication from this this stranger. So I really wanted to push them to the limits to have them so in need of wanting to know about their past that they'd be willing to do that. And the drug in this book, it's a real drug that is used in this trial. Scopolamine? Scopolamine, yeah. It's... It's a pretty amazing drug. It's uh, it's it's been used for a lot of different things over the years, um, including experimentation. But it can be a very suggestive drug, and it can cause memory loss. So I don't want to go much further than that for fear of spoiling this for people who read the book, except to say that a lot of the plot unfolds in Colorado. 
that's different than other books that you've written. Why set it here? Yeah, I usually don't write about places I'm real familiar with. I enjoy kind of exploring new areas. But aside from wanting to write about memory, I knew I wanted to write about the Colorado mountains because just like uh, just like memory, the mountains can be beautiful and horrifying. You can uh, you can have a wonderful day in the mountains, and you can also get lost very quickly in the mountains. And as I was as I was unfolding this um, in my writing, I, it started to kind of dawn on me that I was approaching. Uh, the Maroon Bells, which is where a lot of this takes place, almost like the island in uh, the TV show Lost. There was kind of a mysticism about it, and and I really wanted to evoke that sense. In true thriller fashion, the story is very, very complex. How did you map out the plot for something like this? It was terrible. It was uh, I don't I don't I don't outline. So um, all my books, I just start with that opening scene, and I spend the entire the entirety of the book trying to figure out, okay, who are these people? How do they know each other? So I got about 150 pages in, and I was so in the weeds and not knowing where this was headed. So I took about a month off, and I just covered my office walls in parchment paper, and took about. 10 or 12 different colored markers and just started writing words just to see, okay, is there something that's going to spark an idea about how this proceeds further? And yeah, it took about a month and then it all kind of unfolded in front of me and, uh, and I went on from there. So you were really on this journey along with your readers as you're writing it. Yeah. Is it scary for you to sort of lose the plot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's scary to not even know if there's a plot at all. Um, so you, you you go along the way and then you hope that your subconscious is working. But what's great about it is you'll have that what if moment. The whole book is about, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And when you have that moment and you realize, oh, this is what the book is about, then it completely unfolds and you realize, okay, not only did I surprise myself, but now I'm going to surprise my readers because I didn't see this coming at all. And you also have a day job consulting in the hospitality industry. How do you find time to write books and why is it important to you? I just, you know, I started writing books 16 years ago and I realized that's just now what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, whether I have a full-time job or not. Um, it's just kind of a part of me. But, and I'm a firm believer in there's, you have enough time to do anything you're passionate about, right? So I, I write early in the mornings and I write in the evenings and my goal is 500 words a day. If you can do 500 words a day, which I can do in maybe half an hour, you can easily write a book a year. Carter Wilson's book, The Dead Girl in 2A, we spoke in August. Wilson won three Colorado Book Awards for his previous work and was just nominated for a Reading the West Award. Winners will be announced in May. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I remember my first gift to public radio. I had never donated. I felt like I kept taking the little pennies from the grocery store but never giving one back. It was actually a story that I heard that hooked me in. I had been listening for a number of years and I felt an obligation to do it. After I made my first gift, I remember I felt like I was part of a community, like I had stake in it. Make your first gift right now and you'll listen differently. It's really easy at CPR.org. Super Tuesday is less than two weeks away, and CPR reporters have been all over the state talking with voters about what matters to them this election year. In Boulder, at a coffee shop right across from the University of Colorado campus, Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon met a graduate student who's struggling to stay afloat. 28-year-old Leah White hangs out at Innisfree on the Hill a lot. It's a poetry bookstore and cafe. I'm studying poetry. It's a master's of fine arts program in poetry, and uh, those are really small. So CU only lets in three poets a year. 
And you could say White has a pretty full plate. She juggles grad school, teaches classes, and finds ways to make money. Right now, I'm actually, I have a pretty big teaching load. I also drive for Lyft. Uh, in past semesters, I've worked for multiple university organizations. I've also nannied for, like, families on the side as well, just to try and, like, pay the bills, basically. So the cost of higher education is top of mind for her this year. When I was an undergrad, I had a full-ride scholarship, but my tuition raised by 10% every year. By the time I graduated, there was a huge gap that I had to take out loans for, so I still have student loans. That scholarship was at Arizona State, not CU, but it's still one of the reasons Bernie Sanders and his free College for All plan has caught her eye. No 18-year-old has the capacity to have an income that they're independently earning that's enough to actually pay tuition as they go. It's not possible. So either your parents have a lot of money and they pay for it for you, or you take out loans. Even if her candidate does win the primary and goes on to win the whole thing, becomes president, she doesn't have a lot of faith that it would fix the issues she's concerned about because the president only has so much power. Our politics are so consumed by capitalism and They're being essentially sponsored by these people with a lot of money who are in certain tax brackets and have special interests, and they will vote those special interests so that they continue to be reelected. But she still has every intention of casting her ballot by Super Tuesday, March 3rd. I'm Xandra McMahon, CPR News. We'll share profiles of more voters throughout next week at CPR.org. Thank you so much for your support. We mean it truly when we say it is your support that helps us be on the air. We cannot do it without you. So that's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. You're listening to CPR News.